I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Tristan Walker, founder of Walker & Company Brands, which makes beauty and health products for people of color. Prior to starting Walker & Company, Tristan was the first African-American entrepreneur in residence at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. He was formerly the director of business development at the location-based check-in app Foursquare and also had an internship stint at Twitter. He was a trader on Wall Street at Lehman Brothers and J.P. Morgan for a couple of years before the crash in 2008. He is also the founder of Code 2040, a program that connects black and Latino coders with Silicon Valley startups for summer internships. Tristan is a graduate of Hotchkiss High School, Stony Brook University, and Stanford Business School. He is originally from Queens, New York. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Jessica. So before we get started on your past, I just want to know, what are the unique needs of people of color? And when we say people of color, by the way, are we talking about blacks, Latinos, Asians, or just... Absolutely right. Black, Latino, Asian consumers, the majority of the world. Uh, you know, funny enough, we're, you know, we're tackling what we believe to be a very significant opportunity. When we think about people of color, there are kind of multitude of problems that have gone unsolved. Uh, you think about things like shaving irritation, right? A problem that up to 80% of black men and women have and 30% of everyone else. We think about things related to hyperpigmentation, even things as profound as the prevalence of miscarriage in the community. Um, you know, there are just really profound issues uh, in the health and beauty space for folks of color that have gone unsolved, and we want to solve those. Why does a regular razor blade cause bumps or irritation on the skin? So a lot of, uh, you know, folks of color like myself, uh, I have curly hair. Uh, and I can't use a lot of the multi-blade razors that exist out in the market today because they cut the hair beneath my skin. Uh, and if I have curly hair, what's that going to do? Just grow right back into my skin, causing issues related to razor bumps, ingrown hairs, etc. It saps my confidence, uh, among other things. And when did it occur to you finally to say, you know what, I want to address this? Yeah, so when I, when I really uh, first realized how, how much um, issues related to shaving irritation sap my confidence was my first internship on Wall Street, actually. Uh, it was a trading floor internship. And I'll never forget this moment. There's a gentleman, a trader, who stood up, looked at me in the face, and he said, young man, take that crap off of your face, right, mm. in front of all the other interns. And I felt, wow, no, number one, yes, you're a jerk. But outside of that, um, I remember being mortified by the fact that I couldn't even think of which products I could use to help fix the condition without um, exacerbating it. And by crap, <laughs> what did he mean? Hair on my face. <laughs> I see. Right? You mentioned uh, miscarriages. What, what, what does miscarriages have to do with it? Women of color actually miscarry at a much higher rate than uh, women who are not women of color. My wife, back in December of 2013, actually had a miscarriage, and it was one of the hardest things that we ever had to deal with. Uh, and in doing the research, I started to understand that I think some 20 percent of all pregnancies in, in a miscarriage. But for women of color, that percentage is way higher. And there's very limited research to suggest why. Mm. Um, but recently, there's some compelling research that can draw a straight line between the types of chemical relaxers women put in their hair and the prevalence of uterine fibroids, right, which leads to potential infertility and miscarriage. This is a problem, right? Uh, and I think, you know, companies just really need to be thoughtful uh, about every person's physiological 
biological makeup and deliver a suite of products that can be incredibly efficacious and suit their needs in, in the right way. You know, we talk about these incumbent companies uh, kind of not being well educated in understanding the the black and the people of color market. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also the case really with your investors. When you were looking for venture capital, it was not as you know obvious oh, to your investors. Can all. you talk about some stories uh, and issues that you encountered on that Absolutely. front? Absolutely. I'll give you a, a clear, a one that just illuminates this point. Um, it's my very first pitch. I remember I was on like slide 14 and I had the bevel shaving system uh, next to the proactive acne system. The point that I was trying to make was you really can't think about bevel as like bevel versus multi-blade razors, much in the same way that you can't think about proactive versus Neutrogena, right? For proactive, you can go spend $30 a month for the system to help eliminate the acne issue, or you can go pay $7 for a Neutrogena bottle. Um, so we take that system approach. And I'll never forget this moment. She, she looked at me and she said, Tristan, I'm not sure issues related to um, shaving irritation, razor bumps, et cetera, have as big a societal impact uh, in in your solving it as issues related to acne. At which point I thought, hmm, I understand why you might be saying it, um, but all you had to do after the meeting was get on the phone with 10 black men. Nine of them would have said that this is a, a terrible issue that we have to deal with. So the thing that I think was incredibly disappointing, uh, and we still get this today, is a lot of investors' lack of willingness to acquire the context to understand what we're doing. And you know what I learned in that experience is that it, it had nothing to do with a perceived belief that my idea was bad. It was just the laziness in their willingness to acquire that context. What other examples are there of just people saying, well, I don't think it's a big enough market or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we, we still get that today. I mean, I can't tell you how many journalists talk about how we're tackling a niche market. <laughs> And I'm like, well, it's the majority of the world. You can consider that as niche as you want to. And that's great. We don't believe that to be the case. Who were some of the investors who really helped to give you credibility, yeah. whether it was on the institutional front or, or individuals? So one of my largest investors, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, they've been a part of pretty much every startup that I've been a part of, Twitter, Foursquare, and, and now Walker & Company. You have folks like Nas, the hip-hop artist. He was my first investor. How did you and Nas connect, for example? Yeah, well, first of all, Queens. <laughs> Nas from Queens as well. Has a strong relationship uh, with Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, and it was an interesting pitch. You know, after two minutes, he got it. And what's interesting, um, you know, we have quite a few celebrities who are investors in the company. Uh, and it, it's less a function of, you know, they're being investors because they just want to get on the hot kind of technology investment thing. And more the fact that they walk down the same aisles I do. Uh, you're talking treated. about you're talking about Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson, John Legend, Nas, Harrison Barnes, Andre Iguodala. You know, they're walking down those aisles. They understand that they're still getting treated like second class citizens. When you were launching the product, what do you think was most effective in getting people to to buy a sixty dollars starter kit and <laughs> a, a monthly of thirty dollars for yeah. your service? Yeah. So the thing that I think is interesting to understand about our first brand, Bevel is that it's solving a problem that's been around for 100 years and nobody solved. So you got to really understand this experience, this moment of truth where you shave with bevel, and you wake up the following morning and you didn't break out. Mm. Like that is a moment. And that is a moment that folks are willing to share. And also, I think a really big testament to why over 98% of our customers buy from us every month. How did you get those customers initially? 70, 80% of our customers come through organically via word of mouth. 
it only took a few supporters uh, to get us all the supporters that we have currently. Because like people who? talk. Like who were no, some just, of those just supporters? Just your ordinary customers, right? We we have um, you know the single mom who's teaching her son how to shave, right? That's an important story. That's a story that that's my story. I didn't have a father to teach me to shave. The gentleman in the army, you know, you got to shave every day. Uh, and I'll never forget this moment. The gentleman said, Tristan, for as long as I can remember, issues related to razor bumps have been as big a part of my military career as my uniform. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Tristan Walker, founder of Walker Company Brands. Walker makes products that tailor to the unique needs of people of color. Tristan launched the company in 2013 after serving as an entrepreneur in residence at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. You are from Queens, New York. I am. <laughs> and I must say, so am I. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I want to talk about your background. Absolutely. Your mother is Betty. Yes. What was she like? What is she like? Yeah, uh, my mom is uh, you know, one of the greatest women I know. Uh, and she taught me really the, the virtue of hard work. You know, there's a woman who had to raise uh, three children by herself, working two to three jobs at a time. Now, those two to three jobs that was she was working for the New York Housing Authority yes, in the Time day. Time Warner. Time Warner Cable. Um, you know, just a lot of administrative type work. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I'm truly indebted to her and, and um, what she's done to, to us uh, in support of me. Now, your dad died when you were four. Four years old. How did he die? Uh, he was killed. Uh, and to this day, uh, you know, I, I haven't even asked my mom how. Um, I still have these lingering kind of memories of him and how much I loved him, et cetera. And I never wanted to taint that image. You, know, you don't want to kind of get that full story because you almost can inevitably um, guess <laughs> where that leads. Um, and I, I just never wanted to taint that picture of him. Are you getting closer to wanting to know? Yeah, I will. Uh, I most likely will want to know, particularly now that I have my own son. You uh, had a brother named Sean who was 14 years older than you, and it seemed like he was a pretty prominent part of your upbringing. Yeah, no, I mean, in a world where I didn't really have a father to raise me, uh, Sean took that place for me. Your mom, because she worked late hours, uh, she enrolled you at the Boys Club of New York, which is basically like an after-school program? Yeah, 75 cents. Changed my life. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, I'd go to the Boys Club of New York, play for their basketball team, Um, you know, you have ping pong pool, all that jazz. Is it 75 cents a day or something? Uh, it was 75 cents a year when I was um, when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. And I like to say it was the greatest ROI investment my mom has ever made. Uh, you know, through the Boys Club of New York, you know, I was able to, um, you know, get a full ride to the Hotchkiss School. Right, uh, because school. there happened to be this one coach yeah. who said, <laughs> I hear you're a straight-A student yeah. and a great basketball player. Why don't you take the SSATs yeah. and apply to prep schools? And what do you know? I got I got in. Uh, you know, I got into a school out in Santa Barbara, and then I got into Hotchkiss. Uh, what was this guy's name? Uh, his name was Anthony Blake. Anthony was in my wedding. He's still a mentor of mine. I am very thankful for everything that he has done for me. He changed my life. So you end up at Hotchkiss, which is in Lakeville, Connecticut. Tell me about the differences you yeah. saw. Uh, you know, I like to describe it as, you know, finally observing how the other half lived, right? Yeah, you know, I got to go to school with Rockefellers and Fords, and it was my first um, view into what wealth was. I really didn't have any experience with that other than what I saw on television, uh, and I I knew right away I was ill prepared for it. I didn't know what a verb was <laughs> when I was a freshman there, uh, and then it only took me a short period of time to realize I can compete with them just as well as I can compete with anyone else. When you said that you saw uh, what wealth was, what was your emotional reaction? Was it like, 
wow, this is amazing. I want to be a part of it. Or was it like, this isn't fair? Like, what, what was the oh, emotional no. spectrum mean, of things? I, I thought immediately I wanted to be a part of this. Um, you know, much in the same way that I, you know, went to school with the Rockefellers and Fords, I wanted my last name to mean something. I had one yeah. goal in life at the time that I was get as wealthy as possible as quickly as possible. I realized that there are only a couple ways to do it. Stony Brook, you know, I graduated three years um, and, you know, fortunately, top of the class and had the opportunity to get a front office role. And look, I mean, I had every ambition to be a Wall Street trader and retire young, make all this money. And make her mom proud. Exactly. Only to realize I hated it. (laughs) I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Tristan Walker, founder of Walker & Company. We'll hear more coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Tristan Walker, founder of Walker & Company Brands, which makes beauty and health products for people of color. So you got to Wall Street. You hated it from, like, day one? As a full-time employee, I hated it day one. Yet you continue doing it because you thought it was your way out. Yeah, it was a good job, paid good money. (laughs) What other jobs did you have growing up? Oh, man. Um, clean toilets. That was my first job at a summer camp in New Jersey, uh, at the Boys at- Club in New York, actually. When I was 15, maybe 16, mm-hmm. I was a camp counselor the following summer. And then during university, uh, I started my first internship at Lehman Brothers in the back office operations in Jersey City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and halfway through that summer, I found my way into the front office mm-hmm. uh, in New York. And then I just had trading internships uh, ever since. And the crash of 2008 kind of saved you. Uh, Because, well, you tell me, but is that one of the reasons why you decided to go to business school, Stanford? Yeah, so what was interesting, uh, so I I left J.P. Morgan in January of 2008. Actually, I didn't leave. I got fired, (laughs) right? And this was before the recession hit. I I believe it was like September, October of that year. Why did you get fired? Um, Well, at the time, my manager, and I only had one manager, and I was his only report um, about four or five months prior, he was let go. Um, So I was just meandering around, kind of looking uh, for that mentorship, and they couldn't provide it at the time. And I remember it being so devastating because it was about a week or two before I was hearing back from Stanford. Uh, I hadn't received a bonus at all. My wife and I had just bought an apartment in Queens and were renovating it, right? So there was kind of one to two weeks of extreme anxiety and angst. And fortunately, I was able to get into Stanford. Um, you know, I was able to get my bonus and everything all worked out. Do you remember receiving word from Stanford? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. And I'll never forget it was early morning. You know, it's Derek Bolton, who's the head of admissions. And, you know, he calls every student that gets admitted uh, personally. And, you know, he gets on the phone, and I wasn't expecting this at all. And I'm thinking, I'm having a conversation for about a minute, minute and a half with him as if he were the J.P. Morgan managing director, right? And I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? Like, am I going to get the bonus or not? And a minute and a half in, Derek Bolton's like, Tristan, you do know this is Derek, (laughs) right? (laughs) And at that moment, I let out a huge scream, sigh of relief, and just appreciated the blessing (laughs) at that moment. Did you know that people who are accepted get calls? Uh, I knew it was a thing. I didn't know when it would happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, And it happened at around like 7, 8 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And they're based on the West Coast. So there's no way that I would have thought he would have... I've uh, been awake around 3, 4 in the morning. Did you also apply to other MBA programs? That was the only program I applied to. Uh, you know, I, I tend to be fairly kind of like, you know, uh, you know, one-track mind when I'm really focused like that. And at the time, I said, 
you know, Stanford's about this entrepreneurship thing. It's interesting to me. And also, I want to get as far away, literally and figuratively, as possible from Wall Street. So you were married at the time to Amoy. Yes. Uh, so what, how old were you when you got married? I was 23 years old. How do you know her? Uh, so she and I went to university together. Uh, my last semester at university, I was studying abroad in London. Uh, and she and I had kind of a lot of mutual friends, just never met each other during my entire time at Stony Brook. Uh, I'll never forget, she, um, when I was in London, and Facebook had like that poke feature, like mm. she had poked me. And that really like started our friendship mm. and became best friends very quickly uh, through our own mutual connections. And when I got back, uh, we became even closer friends. A month later, we were dating. Um, and a year later, we were engaged. What does and, she do? Uh, she's a teacher, mm-hmm. uh, seventh grade humanities out in Palo Alto now. So you and Amoy make your way to Stanford Business School. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, you know, for me, I knew that that was the place I wanted to live, Palo Alto, Bay Area. There was an energy and a richness in this whole innovation economy that got me excited. And you were learning about this richness and innovation just through your reading because you had never been to the West Coast. Well, I didn't, not even through my reading. I mean, I thought Silicon Valley was a place where semiconductors got made. It wasn't until I got um, out uh, for in August of 2008, I saw other 24-year-olds not only making millions of dollars, but fundamentally changing the world. And I said, how did I not know about this place? That's a problem. And I did everything that I could to kind of really ingrain myself in the culture there. You landed an internship at Twitter uh, for the summer. Uh, So my first year in business school, we had just started a new curriculum at Stanford, actually. And in your first quarter, uh, you are not allowed to like work anywhere. You got to focus on your studies. They they um, kind of stack rank all of the um, like the most of the core curriculum in the first year. Um, I'm a bit stubborn, and I decided to work full time anyway. So that fall into spring, I worked full time as an internet Twitter as well. What was that like? It was amazing. I mean, it was a time when there were only 20 people at the company. Is how you got the job interesting? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so. In order to get that job, you know, that starts to become like an access thing. So I said, in order to get here, I'm going to have to figure out, you know, who's one degree separated from these folks. I reached out to 20 different folks. The last person, a gentleman, David Hornick, he's a partner at August Capital, but also a professor at Stanford. I reached out to him and asked him, like, what would it take to get that internship? He asked me two questions. He said, number one, Tristan, do you have ideas for the company? I said, sure, I do. I have ideas for everything. And then two, are you willing to work for free? And I said, yes. And he's like, all right, give me a resume. Two days later, I got an email uh, from folks over at Twitter calling me in for an interview. And the following week, I had an internship. And now how you got your your, your first full-time job uh, at Foursquare is yeah. also kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. How did that happen? So same way as Twitter, uh, in, in so much as Foursquare is really changing my life. It was, it was the only thing that would get me out of bed to go to the gym more, <laughs> right? Uh, and there was something in that that was really what interesting. What do you mean? Yeah, so at Foursquare... Uh, you know, we would uh, kind of offer up these incentives to get folks to do things, to explore their cities a little bit more differently. So we had this thing called the Gym Rat Badge. If you check in at a gym t- more than 10 times, you unlock this badge. And, you know, I'd be four check-ins away and I'd wake up on a rainy day and go to the gym just so I can get it. Around that time, I emailed the founders. I found their emails on the Internet. Dennis, Dennis and Naveen. Yeah. yeah. Emailed them eight times. The eighth time Dennis replied back, he said verbatim, you know what? I just may take you up on some of this. Are you ever in New York? Dens. Um, I was in L.A. at the time, and I remember looking at my wife and saying, hey, what should I do? Like, this guy, after eight emails, finally got back to me. 
A couple minutes later, I replied back. I said, actually, you know what? I was planning on being in New York tomorrow. I booked my flight that night, flew out the following day, hung out with him for a week, and a month later, I was running business development for the company. So you booked your flight specifically for him after the Specifically for that. And it was so crazy. You can ask him to this day. um, You know, I walked up. We were at 36 Cooper Square. We were on the fifth floor. And I walk in, and it was just Dennis and Naveen and Harry, uh, lead engineer at the time, and Dennis turned around and looked at me, completely surprised, because he didn't think I was going to come. And I just like walked over to an empty seat, sat down, and got to work. You, you mentioned flying uh, <laughs> back to New York and yeah. flying to Palo Alto. Um, yeah. Just before we started recording, you mentioned that you were on the red eye from San Francisco yeah. this morning and <laughs> yeah. that you are scared of flying. It's biggest fear in the world. When did as you... As much as I travel, it sucks. <laughs> Do you remember your first flight? How old yeah, were you? Yeah, so um, well, my, I used to like flying a lot, actually. And it wasn't until I actually got to business school that I started hating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were two flights in particular um, that really completely changed. And one was flying from New York uh, to Los Angeles. And when you fly in, you see buildings on each side as you approach the runway. And once you see those buildings, the plane looks like it's going faster. And it just terrified me. And then the second time, it was my birthday in 2009. And I remember this so vividly because it was the first time I bought myself noise-canceling headphones. And it was Beats by Dre. And my wife and I were flying from L.A. to Seattle. And (laughs) it was the first time I actually experienced an airplane, like, dropping in the sky for a few seconds. And I was so terrified listening uh, to music on my noise-canceling headphones. I let out the biggest scream, but I couldn't hear it because I had the noise-canceling headphones. And I grabbed my wife's leg so tight, and she had, like, these marks on it. And I was like, oh, I feel so bad. But I really knew I messed up um, because not only was she laughing at me, Everyone else on the plane was laughing at me, but I was terrified. And still to this day, those two flights have completely kind of changed me. And I travel quite a bit. Uh, It's striking to me the intensity of your fear, even though it doesn't keep (laughs) you from flying, because it seems like you're afraid of very little. Yeah. No, I mean, it's well, it's one thing that I can't control. Mm-hmm. And that scares me <laughs> to no end. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Tristan Walker, founder of Walker & Company Brands, a company that makes products tailored to the unique needs of the black and Latino population. What were some other ideas that you had that you were flirting with before starting this specific company? Because uh, you had a bunch of them. You know, I, I spent nine months uh, at Andreessen Horowitz thinking about, um, you know, the most ambitious thing that I could build. I wanted to build a bank um, for underserved communities, the unbanked, underbanked. I wanted to fix trucking in the country and freight. Uh, I thought about an idea to fix childhood obesity, uh, only to realize in those first seven months that I wasn't going to be the best person in the world to solve those problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one advice that I would get, or one bit of advice I'd get from uh, Ben Haro, it says, Tristan, like, what is the thing that you fundamentally feel that you'd be the best person in the world to solve? Do you remember, like, the day you were like, oh, I have an idea? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, <laughs> for about 14 years prior to my starting Pebble, um, you know, I couldn't use multi-bay razors. And, you know, electric trimmers weren't that great for me. And I used depilatory cream. What's that? So, like, Nair 
right? Like, uh, oh. I didn't use the Nair itself, but like, it's the type of depilatory cream. You let it sit on your face for six to eight minutes. You don't need a razor. You wipe it off, and your hair is gone. Now, just the thought about that is pretty crazy, right? Like, how's it even possible? Because a lot of um, those products contain hazardous, harsh chemicals that can burn your skin. Um, you know, it smells terribly, among mm. other things. And you know, I had my last um, kind of purchase of those things, and I just got incredibly frustrated. And I started to ask the question. Why hasn't this problem been solved for folks? And I remember speaking to an old retired consumer packaged goods executive and asked him that same question. And he said something a bit facetiously. Um, and he said, Tristan, go look at photos of black men 100, 150 years ago. None of them had razor bumps on their faces, right? And I thought, I was like, hmm, let me look into this. And I remember going to Flickr and entering generic search terms like black men in the 1920s, Harlem Renaissance. I went through 1,200 photos. I did not find one photo of a black man with razor bumps on his face. And at that point, I said, wow, there's something going on here. Why is this the case? Uh, they all shaved. They're all cleanly shaven, right? Uh, but we can't use multi-blade razors, and they didn't exist back then. So what do they use? And that sent me down this path of really understanding, um, you know, developing a way that everyone used to shave, which is, in our opinion, the best way to shave. Isn't it interesting? Like, yeah. you're basically going back to the basics, yeah. which is just a single razor. And that's, that's it. Blade it's razor. as simple as that. Uh, and you know, the way I think about it right now is uh, in 20, 30 years, there's going to be a lot more curly haired folks in this country. What are they going to be using? You uh, are also the founder of Code 2040, which is a nonprofit. It's an organization that helps people of color get internships at Silicon Valley startups. And you work with Laura um, Weidman Powers, who's the CEO. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So so first, Laura um, was a classmate of mine in business school. and She's one of the most impressive folks that I know. And Code 2040 um, was really founded... um, to ensure that more folks don't make the same mistake I did. And Which that's was? realizing that Silicon Valley exists too late. I realized it when I was 24. Had I realized uh, the potential in Silicon Valley when I was 14, 16, 18, uh, perhaps my career trajectory would be markedly different right now. Why is it called 2040? Because in 2040, that's when the majority-minority flip happens, where folks of color start to become the majority of this country. I want to talk about like what the current state of the world, uh, the <laughs> yeah. Silicon Valley world is. Sure. Uh, so Google has close to 50,000 employees. One percent of the technology <laughs> workers is black. Same at Facebook, one percent. And by the way, right now, blacks are 13 to 15 percent of yeah, the population. that's right. Why is this number so low? So there's, um, I think there's a couple ways to kind of unpack uh, that question. I think first, there's still implicit bias in the interview process. You know, our, our Code 2040 fellows, we have a 90 plus percent full-time off rate. These are stellar engineers. Um, I remember like one of our first few summers, we would have fellows go and interview for full-time positions. Um, and a lot of them weren't getting offers from the, a lot of the larger technology companies. And we started to wonder why. And we started to realize that a lot of those fellows were suffering in the interview process with the whiteboard interviews. Um, So you're asked a kind of engineering kind of problem or a logic kind of question. You have to go to the whiteboard and kind of write out your your thinking around how you'd answer it. None of these kids were exposed to that kind of interviewing. So at Code 2040, we try and think about things that can help kind of mitigate that implicit bias, not only for companies, but also to help students get around that as well. I want to talk about Queens. Yeah, Uh, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do it. How did it influence you? 
What's special yeah. about Queens? Yeah, I, well, I, I think it's also important to really understand kind of where I grew up in Queens, right? Yeah. So I was born in South Jamaica, Queens, um, 40 projects. Uh, when I was six years old, moved to Flushing, Queens, Latimer Projects. Um, Who's Latimer? Louis Latimer. Uh, so he helped um, uh, Thomas Edison with the filament of the light bulb and one of the kind of earliest like black scientists, a really, really stellar, stellar, stellar mm-hmm. man. Um, so a lot of my upbringing was in the projects. Right. Uh, I think that's important context as well. Right. It taught me a lot about grit, uh, resilience, um, you know, how important it was to do good. It taught me the importance of loyalty, courage. Right. What are some examples like we, we were, you know, all these big words, but like bring it down from 10,000 feet. What life was like daily without yeah. with a mom who's at working at Time Warner Cable. Yeah. And, I mean, look, I mean, I know what it's like to take a food stamp and buy your food at the store. Right. I know what it's like uh, at 8.30 at night in your bed on the 10th floor hearing gunshots outside of your, your home, right? You know, I know what it's like not being allowed to go across the street to the park out of fear um, that something would happen, right? Uh, you know, that's that's a life that I had to grow up in and, and still kind of excel in. And if anything, Queens, um, probably more than any other place I've ever lived, really taught me this value of, um, you know, being not only diligent, um, but just working harder than anyone else. I think you tweeted this. Um, oh, uh, tweets. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. You're famous for your tweets. Is oh, that right? Man. Or infamous. <laughs> yeah. One of them I like was trials you go through. Yes. And the blessings you receive are the exact same thing. Yeah. That's the best advice I've ever gotten. Uh, Tyler Perry, writer, producer, actor, gave me that advice. Tyler Perry is a fascinating entrepreneur. You know, he was homeless for some period of his life. Now he's one of the highest paid uh, folks in Hollywood. And what he meant by that is those trials are just lessons, right? And there are blessings in those lessons. What might I not know about you? Oh, interesting. Uh, I'm a bit of an open book. I'm all on Twitter. Are you really? <laughs> I am. I don't know. I am. I'm always willing to answer any question pretty straight with folks. What might you not know about me? I don't know. It's probably going to be the most least interesting part of your interview. <laughs> How would Amoy, your wife, answer that? Um, oh, here's probably one way she'd answer it. Um, a lot of people think that I'm probably the most like social, extroverted person out there. I'm an incredible introvert. I'm an incredible introvert. What do you mean by that? Um, like, I, I get all of my energy and just like sometimes just being alone and doing work myself or just um, hanging out with my wife. All that I like is spending time with my wife and my son watching reality television after a long day at work. Like, <laughs> I love that stuff, right? What is Betty doing now? Uh, she's retired now. Um, Your mom? Yeah, she, she's retired now. She's still in Queens, and uh, is she still, she's not living in the Latimer Project anymore. She still is. She still is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I'm, you know, this is why, you know, we go back earlier in an interview, this whole aspiration around, like, wealth and that sort of thing. Like, Why? Uh, and you know, the, you know, one of the best lessons that you know I had learned about this. I had a gentleman who said, "Tristan, you, know, you want to think about spending your first third of your life learning, the second third of your life earning, and the last third returning." And he said, "All too often, a lot of people try and put the return thing before the earn thing, which prevents them from scaling their impact." So the way I kind of think about my life right now is how can I shorten the earn thing so I can maximize the return? And that's not only with like Code 2040, but it's setting my mom up and giving her everything that she like deserves, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I wish and I have every desire in the world to do that. And that is one of my just 
man, like it's it's hard for me to just like really articulate, but it, it drives me every single day to do. And my family is deserving of, of all that. You mean you want her to have a home outside of the Latimer? Oh, she's, yeah, I want to get her out uh, and I will get her out um, by any means necessary. I'm on a mission there. Thanks very much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. My guest has been Tristan Walker, founder of Walker & Company Brands. Coming up, we'll meet Peter Manning, founder of Peter Manning, a clothing company focused on men 5'8 and under. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Peter Manning, founder of Peter Manning, a clothing company focused on men 5'8 and under. Prior to launching the company in February 2012, Peter was a Tony Award-winning theater producer. Welcome. Great to be here. What percent of the population is under 5'8"? 25% of American men. So why hasn't a company like this existed prior? You know, you see a bunch of fashion designers, actually, uh, who are 5'8 or under, like Giorgio Armani, Mickey Drexler, J. Crew. I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, it's an enormous demographic. It's incredibly difficult to get dressed and find clothes that work. I think maybe it's because this consumer just didn't pipe up and say, what about me? You know, they manage, they go to the tailor, and it's no, it's dispiriting and no fun, but, you know, no one's walking around naked. I also think people thought, how do you do it? There's a stigma. And people have tried. I was speaking to a customer the other day who said, oh, we're so glad you're doing this. It's, my husband's just, she's so happy and all that. She said, there used to be a store in Washington that closed. And I said, oh, really? I don't know. But what store was that? She said, oh, it's called short, the Short Men Shop. And I was like, hmm, wonder why that closed. You know what I mean? I just don't think there's the way to do it. And I'm trying to do it in a new way. Your company doesn't mention the word short uh, anywhere. Uh, is that a conscious decision? Definitely. It is a stigma. It is a bummer in our in our the world we live in. It, so why not sort of avoid it? I'm five eight. I was having problems. I thought if I'm having you know issues, then definitely guys shorter will. You know, one of the funny things is men who are shorter sometimes I'll tell them that I'm doing this, and they go, "Oh, really? That sounds interesting." You know, I do okay, and they'll sort of walk away, and then they'll come back and say, "Hey, you gonna do polo shirts?" <laughs> What is so painful about making your pants a little shorter? What does it mean to have a company geared towards the 5'8 and under crowd? Is it just simply making shorter pants? I don't think men want to shop. So they don't want to shop and then have to go for the second step of taking your clothes to the tailor. And also the proportion on things are wrong. So if you get pants shortened... They're still too wide at the ankle and they're too wide at the knee and it makes you look shorter because your pants are too wide. So... It's never quite right. I heard that you wore a Brooks Brothers uh, boys blazer for several years. Yeah, you know, it's all true. I mean, men have had to, like, shop in the boys department. What is a tailor tax? I call the tailor tax the money, the extra money one pays to fix your clothes. You know, I've shortened T-shirts that are just too long or polo shirts that are too long or I've had to take sleeves in because they're just too wide. I mean, it, it's really a pain. Mm-hmm. If you, and if you care, mm-hmm. it's a pain mm-hmm. and it's a lot of money. And if you don't care, you don't look good. I noticed uh, you talk about your clothes being inspired by, you know, New York City street life, like the subways, for example. What is it about the subway that inspired your, your design? Well, it was about color. The mosaics in the subway, the subway signs, are these beautiful signs from the, when the subways were first made. Burnished reds and 
deep blues and kind of great sort of hunter green jewel tones. And, you know, there's a stop at 86th Street and a stop at Bleecker Street I call Bleecker Blue, you know, in my head, you know. So it's it's that kind of influence. Now, you're still in the early days of the company. I mean, you you, you launched oh, yeah. in February 2012. Oh, yeah, so, we're early. So, so you're, you're going through the process of, of defining and executing. And what has been harder for you than you thought, even not very far into the company? Um, hard is getting your product made and done. And, you know, in factories that you're, you know, I'm a little pisher. I'm not a big gun yet. So... You're not a priority, and how to make sure that you get the quality that you want, that's really a struggle. The name of the company is eponymous, uh, is is Peter Manning. How did, how did you ultimately come to that? Was it obvious? or? I was talking to a branding firm that was helping me, and I came in into a meeting, and they said, your name is Peter Manning. People would pay us lots of money to come up with that name, and it's yours. In the early days and still, I'll respond to a customer and they'll say, wow, it's you. And I'm like, sure, yeah, we all pick up the phone around here. There's no, you know, we all are helping. It's all it's all hands on deck. So I think having someone behind it who's who's felt their pain and who believe, who wants the same clothes too is really makes a difference. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the clothing designer, Peter Manning. Peter is the founder of Peter Manning, an e-commerce clothing company for men 5, 8, and under. You've had quite a career shift. Uh, prior to starting Peter Manning, you worked in theater for over 15 years. Yeah. What drew you to theater initially? I did start in the theater. I wanted to be an actor. But I loved it. I mean, I growing up, I always did it, and I loved it. And then it got hard, and I wanted to see what the other side was about because I didn't want to just sit around and complain about how, oh, there's no opportunities for actors and they don't really want me and all this stuff. I just, I didn't like sitting around talking actor talk. And I got an internship at Manhattan Theater Club and I worked there for two and a half years and ended up saying, oh, producing. There's plays and there's this whole other side of it that I hadn't thought about. You won a Tony Award in 1998 for Sideman, which was a, a show that you took to Broadway. A Sideman is somebody who plays like in a jazz band, right? What, what, how would you just define what a Sideman is? A Sideman is a guy who plays in a jazz band. He's a guy who plays for hire, you know, so he can play in a, a big band there. He can play at a wedding. He can play, you know, he can play in an orchestra pit. He's just a, he's a journeyman musician. Yeah. And... Um, it was a play that I loved that I'd done at New York Stage and Film. Um, when I left New York Stage and Film, I told the writer Warren Light, I promised him that I would do the play in New York. I had no idea how I was going to do that. And every producer in New York had seen Sideman and Turn It Down. I knew that it would be a success. I just knew it in my bones. How much of your memory does that project consume in your era of theater? It was an incredible incredible experience for so many of us. And part of it, just as we were moving from downtown to Broadway, our daughter was born. So so, so it's sort of tied up in that as well. But Frank Wood, who played the father, was this journeyman actor who'd sort of been like a sideman, but an actor, because actors are like sidemen too. And he went on to win the Tony Award. Edie Falco played the mother before. I remember Edie Falco telling me at some rehearsal one day going, oh yeah, I got the show, it's The Sopranos. I remember vividly thinking to myself, 
wow, God, Edie sure doesn't seem like the sort of taffeta dress singing type. Because I thought it was, just, I had no idea. I mean, that's, so we were all kind of young and doing this thing we just believed in with all our heart. Mm. And it kind of, you know, you have this experience where you sort of put it together with tape and love and, you know, hope for the best. And we're, everyone's working for nothing in a conditions that are like, you know, almost tawdry, and you sort of do it and get it on, and it works. And it just, I knew, and then moves to Broadway and then wins the Tony Award. It just, I thought, that's not going to happen again. So, you know what? Let me just put that Tony Award on my shelf and gaze at that and go home and take care of my kid, was sort of how it went. Why did you make a, a shift from theater? Uh, oh, the easy answer and the quick one is that we had a child. And Andre, my husband, now husband, partner then, but now we're married, uh, was. Uh, the artistic director of Lincoln Center Theater, and I just thought there was no way for both of us to have a real, you know, really the careers that you need to have in the theater because you have to give 110 percent in the theater. You, there's no other way to do it half. How did you meet Andre? I interviewed to be his assistant, and we had an incredible interview that where we both were like, "Wow, something was happening here," but you know, we were it was work, so we were nothing did, and I didn't get the job because his assistant didn't end up leaving, but he left a message on the machine saying, well, there is no job, um, but let's get together for dinner sometime. And I thought, oh, wow, he must have felt it too. And then you worked at Lincoln Center after. I did. And that was a little tough. It was sort of exciting at first because no one knew about uh, our relationship. And then then it got annoying uh, and hard after a while. <laughs> that office romance stuff. You're um, not the first. Yeah, exactly. You and Andre uh, have have been partners, and now he's your husband for since when? Since 1991. And you two have had kind of a personal entrepreneurial moment in having your daughter. Can you explain that? We wanted a child, and you know, so we sort of stumbled on an agency that was on 46th Street, and and we did. But we also, when I look back, I think, wow, we kind of were out there on it. I think we're the first male couple in New York to adopt jointly. And we take it for granted now because you have a lot of single-sex couples adopting, but you were the the first. Yeah, there, there are no – Katie has very few peers, mm. in, and in, we're in New York. You know, we were always kind of the only two dads around for a long time. Now there's lots of them, which is great. Mm-hmm. But but she, she's a real trail. She's a real trailblazer too. So she's got to sort of blaze that trail too and explain all the time as well. After you left the theater world, before starting the company, uh, you you went back to college because you hadn't finished college. You only had a semester left, but you actually went to four years at, at Columbia I and, did. and focused on on architecture. Right. So was the thought that you would go into a career in architecture? Well, I kind of knew that I wasn't going to go into a career in architecture, but I knew that I wanted to finish this degree that was unfinished, and I knew that I loved architecture, and I, I didn't quite know where it would go. Uh, when I got out, a friend who had been incredibly successful in real estate said, I think you'd make a good developer. And I didn't – I said, really? What's that? And he said, well, let's go go find something and let's let's do a project together. It's in Nolita, which is uh, uh, on the Lower East Side. Yeah. Uh, on Elizabeth Street. Yeah. It's a, it's a building – it's a building that people are, can't believe is new. Mm. It's br- uh, brick and wood windows and has a kind of detail and kind of heft that buildings used to have 100 years ago. So why from theater to architecture uh, to clothing? How did you land here? I landed here because I did the development. It was the same, I was using the same exact skills in, my develop, in developing the building that I was using in the theater. And I thought to myself, oh, 
I could do that clothing company that I've wanted to do literally since I was 10 years old. You know, I, there's a story. My mother, I was 10. We were driving in the car in Larchmont, New York, where I grew up. And I wanted, said, Mom, I want bell bottoms. And she said, oh, sweetie, I can't buy you bell bottoms because by the time I shorten them, they won't be bell bottoms anymore. Mm-hmm. And I remembered it as vividly as, you know, yesterday. And I thought, that's really not fair. It's like the proverbial bell bottoms is my rosebud. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's what I've been searching for. Your earliest memories associated with knowing that you were gay also tie into a sartorial moment, a connection to clothes when you were a child. Right. I have this vivid memory of my going up the third floor stairs with my older sister, who's, I guess, nine nine years older than me, and saying to her, you know what I love? I love waking up in the morning because I can't wait to get dressed. And I had this mustard pair of, like, you know, sort of pants that I loved. I remember my sister having a face on that was like, that's weird. You know, other five-year-olds are not saying that. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you're gay. But, I mean, it was – it was. so I kind of always knew. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I hit it and, like, lots of people did and came out when I was 21. And everyone I knew was like, oh, really? You had this love of style and clothes, you know, from the age of five. How, how about your parents? My mother was really – you know, she dressed beautifully. You know, she knew that girl. You know, she taught at a girls' school, and she knew girls were watching. So she would pride herself on not wearing the same thing twice for you know weeks and weeks on times. She always looked put together and always managed to you know look great on with, without a lot of dough. And why didn't you start this earlier? I I don't know. I I, I just it didn't occur to me that I could. I mean, at the time, the our building did very well, but the real estate market at the time had just dried up, and so I was sort of trying to figure out what was next. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and start this. And I, it's like this, that thing, and that can happen. I sat next to someone at a dinner party who had had a very successful career in, in, uh, with the uh, retail. And she, I told her, that I said, I've always had this idea. And she said, that's a great idea. Hmm. Call these people. They're starting, starting a like, kind of consulting firm for new brands. And you should really do that. That's a great idea. Hmm. And so I, off I went. When you initially launched uh, Peter Manning, uh, where did the capital come from? I was able to get a loan, 200000 It was the first time the bank ever gave a loan to a startup. Mm, what bank? Uh, M&T Bank, mm-hmm. um, because they mm. believed in it. And so that's how I got started, because I was really at the moment where I was like, I, I can't, I can't, maybe I'm not going to pull it off. Maybe I'm not going to get there. And they approved the loan and were like, and I was like, we're off. Mm. We can do this. But then it's like, well, now you have to go raise more money. and But now we have a proven concept and sort of real growth. And people can go, oh, wow, wow, you really are onto something. And when you're an entrepreneur, which I guess I am, I'm like the reluctant entrepreneur, you're so, sometimes you're so far out on a limb that you feel like it's going to break. You know, I've cried on street corners. Like, I don't know how I'm going to solve this. And then I remember that we're not curing cancer. We're just trying to sell some pants, like, and you get through it, and everyone's going to live, and it, you know what I mean. So, it, but to just the, when you feel so much and you want so much, the right thing, you know. Why have you cried on a street corner? Okay, here, well, here's here's what. Chinos are a big part of our business. The chinos that came in right before we were to put them on sale came, and their back pockets were too shallow. Like you couldn't get a wallet in them, all of them. So we. So we had to send them back to the factory, and then they have to remake them. And they're like, oh, sorry. I'm like, oh, sorry. Mm. What? Didn't anyone ask? Like, these pockets don't seem right. Like, no one asked that question. 
And so I'm still waiting for those pants. They're currently in customs. I'm waiting for them to come. And so it's just brutal. I feel so deeply about my customer that I just, it drives me crazy. Your daughter, what role, if any, has she played in the founding of this company? Well, it's funny you should ask. The The New York Times did an article about me and the company in March of 2012. And at that time, she's in boarding school now, which she's an ice hockey player, and she'd gotten into the school and we were going up for what is called the revisit, um, the weekend where you go and sort of go look at the school and decide whether you really want to go there or not. And that was the day that the New York Times article came out. Like the New York Times article came out that morning and we were in the car on our way four and a half hours to New Hampshire for two days and there was nothing I could do. And my Blackberry is going ping, 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 ping. And I'm thinking, I can't go to this school and like be one of those New York dads with my Blackberry in the corner when everyone else is trying to like look like, oh, yes, we love it here and the trees are so pretty and oh, we're so interested in this humanities class and wow, the gym's great and the whole thing. And my Blackberry is literally going to explode from, you know, orders that I'm getting. So I just said to Katie, I said, young lady, when you get home, you are going to work. And we came home and we, because we were, we were at the time, we were, it was all in our house. Like one day a truck came and delivered all these boxes and I lugged it upstairs. In and, Manhattan. In Manhattan. And she, for two days straight, we just, for 12 hours, just like pushing it out. We'd push them out. I'd run to FedEx and drop them off. I mean, it was absolute insanity. I mean, a great lesson for a kid to sort of go, wow, this mm. is how it works. You know, when I can see, too, sometimes when she's like, you know, the business, and it's like it's like the, the other sibling. It's competitive. Yeah. Do you ever see people on the street wearing your clothes? I have, and it's so great. Just, you know, guy in a shirt and a khakis, and I just, you know, was driving, going by in a cab, and there he was. And I was like, there he is. He looks great. There's a very funny story. My daughter calls one day, and she's like, you're not going to believe it. This guy came up to me at school and said, hey, hey, is that is your dad Peter Manning? And she said, yeah. And she's like, why? And she said, I wear his pants. <laughs> it turns out she has a crush on him. So, uh, she, oh, uh, you know what I mean? The whole thing is too weird, but, but very funny. It struck me that, you know, here you are the producer of Sidemen uh, and Sidemen being musicians in, in jazz bands. And y- your career has been somewhat of a of a jazz song, you know, kind of ad hoc a little bit, you know, going from, you know, this beat to that. Yeah. Have you thought about that? I had never made that connection, but it does make a lot of sense. And it it's true. You know, in jazz, they sort of pick up the melody where it, wherever it comes from and in Sideman, uh, there's a monologue where he, he talks about his father playing, and he said, you know, he'd be playing the horn, and if a horn and if a car horn blew outside, he'd incorporate that into his solo. And I guess there's a little bit of that in my life, sort of here are these things, and you're sort of allowing them to to give them life, you know, from a play to a kid to a clothing company to a building. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's been great to be here. My guest has been Peter Manning, the founder of the clothing company, Peter Manning. If you'd like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org or follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. From Scratch.